But anyway, it's no coincidence this morning that as we prayed for these things and as we as we ponder these questions that even we've asked this morning, it's no it's no coincidence that we're here because uh, God wants the truth of His love for us to meet us where we are. And I can promise you that uh, that we need to understand the love of God and be captivated by the love of God uh, in the Book of Hosea, like uh, like we will be today. And my prayer is that you would be transformed by this understanding of God's love uh, when you leave today. His love should shock us so much that uh, there can only be two real responses. Uh, either you think it's too good to be true and you disbelieve, or you hear it and you surrender to it, believing that it's true. But there's one thing about it. When you hear about God's love in the book of Hosea, you can't be... Uh, 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 kind of uh, lackadaisical about it. You can't be bored by it. It can't be something that is, uh, God's love cannot be something that you, um, that you just kind of look at and go, eh. It, it just can't be that way. You're not getting it, if that's your response. In fact, I, it's so interesting, last, uh, a week ago yesterday, you had the, the royal wedding and all of the, the trappings surrounding that. Uh, seems like maybe a good investment for uh, the, the nation of England. They spent $50 million on the wedding, but they're supposed to generate $100 billion in tourist revenue. So uh, you weigh the options there. But, um, but all that to say, uh, the one who stole the show was the head Episcopal, Episcopal bishop from the United States, uh, who gave his uh, ode to love, if you will. And uh, he just captivated everybody's uh, attention with this idea of enduring covenant love. And, and, and the fact is, is that uh, whether we want to agree with him and all of his theology or not, he nailed it, a lot of it, right? He nailed this, this idea of love and what love does and the power of love and how love can transform. All of that is true and all of that is rooted uh, in the truth of God's word. And I think after we go through the specifics of the book of Hosea, you'll see uh, not just that what he said was true, but the transforming power of the love that is rooted in Christ is the most transforming power that there is on earth. And so that's why we need to come face to face with God's love today in the book of Hosea, because he is the God of the unfaithful. So let's, let's dive in and let's learn a little bit about Hosea. Now, Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. This was about 200 years after Israel split uh, into the north and the south. And you, you remember from our study of 2 Kings, that situation where Solomon died and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, took the throne. But a guy named Jeroboam didn't like what he did uh, and, uh, and didn't like what Solomon did. And so he led a rebellion. And so Solomon uh, in the aftermath of, of the beauty and grandeur of Solomon's temple, the kingdom divides. And it divides into the ten tribes of northern Israel and to the two tribes of southern Israel, which is also known as Judah. And all of these prophets arise up after the pattern of Elijah and Elisha. And we've studied several of those prophets, but here we come to the, the, what's listed first in the book of the minor prophets. His name is Hosea. We've, we've looked at Amos. We've looked at Jonah. And you're going to continually see this message that is looking at the current status, the current uh, spiritual condition of Israel. And they are, these prophets are going to rail against it because Israel has fallen so far from where God originally called them to. They were supposed to be the ones that restored the blessing of God to all creation, to all the nations. 
And yet they become bastions of injustice and bastions of unrighteousness and idolatry. And we've emphasized this specific message as we've gone throughout the prophets. Is that these prophets spoke, they were individuals who spoke with a specific message to a specific people at a specific time and place. And often they were called to preach, they were called to confront. But sometimes, like Hosea, their lives are called to be an illustration of something. And we'll see this especially as we get into the book of Isaiah. Uh, one of the things that perplexed me as a new believer was why God called Isaiah to walk around naked for three years. That's actually a part of the Bible. And if you've ever read through the Bible and you've made it to Isaiah and you got to that part, you're thinking, what in the world? Well, because sometimes uh, the, uh, the spiritual reality of Israel's condition was something that they were so blinded to that God used his prophets as a physical example to illustrate something, a spiritual reality to them. And so we're going to see that, like I said, when we, when we deal with the book of Isaiah in a few weeks. But in Hosea, we see that very clearly in the first three chapters when Hosea is called to do something very interesting. Remember, uh, this, this idea of Hosea's calling uh, is not easy. And these are real people uh, in this passage, and yet God had incredible purposes for them to use them for His glory. So look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, after you get the context from uh, verse 1, you see in verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I'm not sure how many times you can fit the word whoredom in a sentence, but I think that one takes the cake. Whoredom is another word for, uh, for prostitution or harlotry, maybe some of your Bibles say. Basically, um, Isaiah, I mean, Hosea was called to go and find a woman who God knew would be unfaithful to him. I think that's the key to it all. Because once again, God is calling Hosea to illustrate with his life a reality, a, a reality of what Israel is doing. And so Hosea is called by God to go and marry a very promiscuous woman. God tells him in advance that she's going to be unfaithful. And all this is supposed to illustrate somehow in some way, we'll learn how in a few moments, but... All this is supposed to illustrate somehow, some way, Israel's idolatry against the Lord. And so at the, in verse 3 it says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, it's interesting. I'm not sure uh, if anyone ever names their daughter Gomer, uh, but uh, it's probably not high on the list of girls' names from the Bible. And so he marries her, and we know that she has three children. We're sure that one of them is his, but it's very possible because of her lifestyle that the other two are not. And so we get into their names, and the, that's what this first chapter uh, really covers, is the, the naming of these three children. The first son is named Jezreel. His name was meant to remind Israel about a time in their history in 2 Kings chapter 9. In fact, if you want to write 2 Kings chapter 9 in, your, in the margin of your Bible there in chapter 1, uh, this, is, this is the reason that the first son is named Jezreel. Because in 2 Kings chapter 9, uh, it's after the time of Ahab and Jezebel. We all remember Jezebel, right? Uh, and, uh, and King Ahab. 
It's after that period of time, and there's a man named Jehu that comes to the throne. And Jehu, at that time, when you, uh, when you became king, if you were part of the nations outside of Israel, it was very, uh, very likely that in order to stay king, you had to murder the former king's entire family so that none of them posed a threat against you. And so Jehu is not following God. He's following the ways of the world, so to speak. And he follows that political wisdom and he kills, uh, not only does he kill uh, the, uh, the king of Israel, he also kills the king of Judah and he kills Jezebel. And it's this very public execution. And while we can look at Look at that as, yeah, that was actually God's judgment on the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel. At the same time, uh, God did not uh, uh, ordain the means by which Jehu committed this wickedness. God is not wicked. He does not call people to do wicked things. However, he does use people in their wickedness. And that's just one of the marvelous uh, character traits of God that we see as we study the Old Testament. We look at the book of Judges, for instance, and Samson and, and, uh, and, and some of these others. And so as Jehu goes into the valley of Jezreel and commits all of these assassinations, so Hosea's first son's name was Jezreel to remind the people of Israel about how wicked their leaders had gotten and about their bloodlust. Well, then you go to the second child, and it says, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're in verse 6 of chapter 1, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. Now, once again, we get into uh, translation issues. If you've got an older translation like the King James, it leaves the Hebrew. Just like it left it for Jezreel, it, it leaves it for Lo-Ruhamah, and it leaves it for Lo-Ami in, uh, in the next child. But uh, in my translation, it literally says, Call her no mercy, which is what Lo-Ruhamah means. Call her no mercy. And he says, call her that, verse 6, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And then verse 8, the third child, when she weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore another son. And the Lord called, said, call his name, not my people, or lo ami. Because the people had rejected God, and thus had, in, in rejecting God, God rejected them in their idolatry. Once again, these are real people. It's a real family. And this, uh, this ex very extreme example shows the extent to which God tries to get the attention of His children. Sometimes God does extreme things to, to get the attention of His children. Hosea's life is an example of that. Hosea embodied, he, he, he physically illustrated this spiritual reality that, that Israel had become spiritually ignorant of. And so every time these children were called by their names, it would be a reminder to the people around them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had set himself against them. But what happened to their mother was even worse. Gomer went back to her old lovers. And so uh, you see it kind of uh, depicted uh, right here. Uh, here. Here, Hosea is left as a single dad, so to speak, as Gomer walks away and goes back to maybe somebody that she was friendly with before she married Hosea. 
And the, the fact is, is that the, when you put Hosea's prophecy together and you read the narrative, you understand what he's talking about behind it. Here's, here's essentially what happened. Uh, they had these children. Uh, Gomer leaves Hosea with the three kids and goes, uh, goes her merry way. And she is with this man who's objectifying her, assaulting her, this man who is, who's, who's not interested in a love relationship at all. In fact, it gets to such an extent because he's probably uh, got issues of his own, obviously, to where he becomes broke. And Hosea actually goes and takes uh, money and food for him to take care of her because that's one of the accusations that, uh, that, that Hosea speaks out. Uh, is that he took her all of these items to take care of her, and the man used those items to take care of her, but in the end, Gomer just looked at this other man as being the provider rather than looking beyond this other man to Hosea. But eventually, that other man gets tired of her because, once again, sin object causes us to objectify and dehumanize other people, strips other people of their dignity. And so this man eventually says, I've had enough of her, and so I'm going to go and I'm going to sell her. I'm going to basically human trafficking. I'm going to sell her back into this, uh, this sex slavery that she was involved with. And so uh, commentators say that most likely uh, Gomer was stripped naked and that she was put on an auction block in front of a crowd of men so that they could see what, what they were buying. And Hosea walks up and he sees his wife and there she is on the auction block and what is he to do? Well, if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see what he does. The Lord calls him. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Anything I don't, I don't get it. It's, uh, all of it's Hebrew, uh, Hebrew imagery and, and cultural context. But essentially, she's on this auction block, and he, this being his wife, he buys her back in fulfillment of the Lord's command. So I bought her, verse 2, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley. Now, once again, we don't get what's happening here. But as, her, as his wife is stripped naked on this auction block, potentially going back into this trafficking situation, uh, Hosea has already given money to take care of her. The going rate for a slave was 30 shekels of silver. Commentators say that the fact that he paid 15 shekels in, in actual silver and then paid the rest in goods meant that uh, in buying her back, it bankrupted him. And so this very, very troubling emotional situation has just taken a turn or even worse. Because now, in order to get her back, he's got to totally ignore his own needs, totally ignore his children's needs, and he's got to redeem her and spend every bit of the money that they have and all of the goods that they have to make sure that she doesn't go back into this uh, trafficking situation. And so, Hosea's life, ultimately, is a... Uh, Hosea's life and Gomer's unfaithfulness as a scandalous illustration of the love of God towards us. 
And that's what the entire book is about. In, in chapters 1 through 3, you have this explanation of the situation and the unfaithfulness of Gomer and, uh, and Hosea's continual faithfulness. And then you, in, uh, in, uh, in the rest of the chapters, you just have basically Hosea being a prophet, giving a prophetic exposition of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And so if we want to understand this book and understand the message, because this book is, a, is, is for the people of Israel, but it's also for us. The very last verse of the book actually makes that very clear. How are we to understand this book? Well, the first way that we need to understand this book is we need to, we need to confess this. We are in the position of Gomer. We are Gomer. You see, the nation of Israel had ceased to be shocked at the wickedness of their leaders and their religious idolatry. Remember, the northern tribe of Israel had two temples. They said, oh, well, Solomon, he's got one. We'll build two. And in those two temples, they built golden calves. And not only did they build golden calves, those golden calves represented the gods of the Canaanites around them. And every time that the people of Israel would need uh, to pray for the harvest, they would go and they'd offer the sacrifices according to the Levitical law. But then on top of that, just to make sure, they would go and they would worship the Baals. They would worship the Canaanite gods just to make sure they had their bases covered. And God is utterly betrayed and takes it personally. And so they didn't see any problem with this, with the fact that God had redeemed their ancestors from Egyptian slavery, with the fact that, that he had miraculously brought them into the promised land, yet they would go and bow down to the bales and pray for the harvest. And so how personally does God take our adultery? He says it is spiritual adultery. How, how personally does God take our idolatry? He says it is spiritual adultery. And so he uses Hosea's life and marriage to an unfaithful woman to shock Israel into a place of clarity about their actions. And God's word says to us today that we have committed spiritual adultery against God just like Gomer. Now you may never have been unfaithful to your spouse, but you have definitely been unfaithful to God. We have definitely found ourselves in a position of betraying God and trading a relationship with Him for much lesser things. And so we need to ask ourselves these questions because that's what the minor prophets are, are calling us to do. We need to, we need to ask the questions about idolatry in our lives. What are you depending on to comfort you besides God? What are you leaning on in your life to bring you fulfillment, meaning, and purpose more than God? Is it a relationship in your life? Is it your job? Is it a, is it a hobby? Where, where is your time, talent, and treasure focused? What are you choosing, uh, to, or are you choosing to carve out your own path rather than follow the path of life and live, uh, uh, that God has carved out for you? Do you want to live on your own terms and, and define things the way that you want to define them rather than defining them the way that God wants to define them. You see, these are places of idolatry, and these are places where the Lord wants to get our attention. And here's the deal. I'm going to read, this is a, a quote by, uh, by Tim Keller, okay? Because uh, uh, he, he's probably, in his uh, book, The Reason for God, probably one of the best explanations of idolatry and why idolatry is not, not just such a serious sin, but such an unfulfilling one at that. This is what he says. He says, sin isn't only doing bad things, what we normally think of as sin. But it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than God. 
Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. So, for instance, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or your partner or your kids, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family and your children, you will try to live your life through them until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and your career, then you'll be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will, at worst, you will lose family and friends and, if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which to avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity even on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you will have no purpose. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating and it will control you. That's why I love Tim Keller because it's just like, just stop. It just hurts. Because here's the problem with our idolatry. I mean, we can, we can look at northern Israel and their two temples and the Baals and all that. We can kind of keep it relegated to the Old Testament. But the fact is, is that idolatry is us. It's, it's where we are. It's where we live. And here's the problem. Is that our idols, Christopher J. Wright says, the worst thing about idols is that they are utterly useless when you need them the most. You, I mean, let's, let's just say you idolize your job and you're a workaholic. You work and work and work and work and work. And when your family needs you the most, where can they find you? Work. How has work helped you? It may have provided money. And that money ultimately becomes an idol for your kids. I mean, idolatry is the pervasive snare of walking with God. There is never a time or season in your life where you can just be settled with the fact that you don't have any idols. We always have idols. It's the question is, what are they? And to live in continual awareness of those idols because we are Gomer. We are continually going back and being tempted with the struggle of going back to those idols and trading the goodness and the loving kindness of our faithful God for something that can't even be there to help us in our time of need. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And so we are Gomer. But the good news of Hosea is that even though we are Gomer, that God is our Hosea. 
You see, the reason that God told Hosea to pursue Gomer, even in her, her unfaithfulness, is because he wants to paint a picture for us of his perfect pursuit of us. And just like Gomer, we're on the auction block. We're not worthy of his love. We've done nothing to merit the work of his redemption, but he gives it freely. Just like Hosea paid a price that broke him in order to give Gomer back, God gave that which was infinitely value, valuable, namely his one and only son, to bring us home. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that but God showed his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, that is his enemies, while we were walking in rebellion against him, that Christ died for us. And this is the rest of of. The message of Hosea when he points into the future, he says there's coming a day, Israel, there's coming a day when even in the midst of your unfaithfulness that God will send a Messiah. He will send a victorious warrior who will come and he will restore you. And Hosea is just continually pointing to this Messiah who will one day come. Well, for us, he's here. And just like there's never a time in your life where you grow beyond idolatry and the temptation of idolatry, there's never a time in your life where you will grow beyond a constant, ever-present, pressing need to walk with Jesus Christ and with Him in full sight. And so for us as New Testament Christians, as those who are living after the Messiah has come, here is something for us to recognize as one of the main methods of discipleship and sanctification, that God's love is power, not reward. God's love is power, not reward. Now, let's, let's understand what we're talking about. In Hosea, while Gomer was a prostitute and an adulterer, Hosea offered love to her. Even after she'd left him with three kids and goes back to being unfaithful to him and stands on an auction block, God told Hosea to go buy her back. She's done nothing at all to deserve it. She's standing in her condemnation. And yet he buys her back. And this is God's love for us. And this is how we escape the bondage of sin. We don't change ourselves and earn God's love as a reward for cleaning ourselves up, but instead we find transformation by embracing the reality of His love for us. If your Christianity is primary dri primarily driven by the guilt of your past, then my friend, there is a much better pathway than self-righteous religiosity. Because that's, that's what that is. If you're driven by the guilt of your past, if you're just afraid, uh, afraid that somehow God's going to get tired of you, then you don't understand the love of God for you. And that's what the book of Hosea is given to us to put on just this beautiful display for us. You see, Jesus was faced with a, a gomer in John chapter 8, wasn't he? When the Pharisees caught this woman who had, in, in adultery, and they come and they throw her before Jesus. And, and just so you know, in the Levitical law, the Levitical law actually states that a woman or a man that is caught in adultery can be punished. They, they can be, their, their spouse can divorce them. And even if it's a flagrant situation, they can be stoned. They, that, that, that spouse can have that unfaithful spouse killed as a just punishment for that adultery. Adultery is a very serious sin in God's eyes. It is a very serious sin in God's eyes. 
And yet, as this woman is cast before the feet of Jesus, remember what he does. He bends down and he starts drawing in the dirt. And the Pharisees are pressing him, saying, What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he says those very famous, often misquoted words. He who is without sin casts the first stone. And the people recognizing their, their condemnation, they leave. And what does Jesus say to the woman? He says, neither, he, the, the, he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they've left. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The sequence of those words is of utmost importance for us. You see, not sinning is not the pathway to being embraced by God. But instead, it is as we recognize the finished work for Jesus on our behalf on the cross, and as we recognize the incredibly immense and amazing love of God on our behalf, just like we sung today, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. As we, as we abide in that truth, that's when we find the transforming power to leave that life of sin and those habits that make us or that cause us to slip into idolatry over and over and over. You see, the, the reason for your idolatry is because you feel like you're missing something. That God isn't just, He's not giving it to you. But the fact is, is that He is totally sufficient for you and your life. It's just a matter of whether or not you believe Him and go to Him to find fulfillment in Him. The answer starts with fixing your eyes on the truth of God's love for you, of the grace He's extended to you, and what He has done to save you. And as you abide in this truth, the Spirit of God transforms you and sets you free from those idols. You see, God takes gomers, and as our Savior, as our Hosea, He makes us into little Hoseas. You see that? Because when He puts the Spirit of God inside of us, it's not just like He's done. He actually wants to take us, we who are broken, we who uh, don't earn anything from God, we who just abide in His love and then go and we overflow that love to other people. We become people who pursue other people even in the midst of their rebellion, even in the midst of their pain, their heartache. We go and we overflow that love into their lives persistently just like God does. You see, we are little Hoseas. And the fact is, is, is that like Hosea, God calls us to put His character on public display through an undesirable set of circumstances. Many times, the primary means of your testimony to the world of God's sufficiency is something that you would never, ever, ever, ever choose to go through, right? As, as I, last Saturday, as I sat and we, were, we, we meditated upon this idea of calling, of, of to create, to confront, and to care, uh, in that care section, the last, the last thing that we talked about, or the last person we heard from was Johnny Erickson Tata, who, who decades ago, she dove headfirst into the Chesapeake Bay and, and broke her neck and became a quadriplegic. And, and here she was, and she, in this wheelchair, I mean, she even, in front of 
800 and something people, she had to have one of her helpers come on stage and wipe her nose because she couldn't even wipe her nose. And yet, her testimony through it all, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Just think about that. In her life, in our lives, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. We are the Hoseas. God wants to use us to deliver a specific message to a specific set of people at a specific times. And many times we would not choose to be those who bear up that message. And even today, I would persuade you that God is preparing you to be that Hosea. And there's only one way forward. There's only one preparation that you can make for it. And that is to surrender to the truth about God's love and God's work on your behalf in Jesus. So that's what the invitation is about today. It's about recognizing it kind of in a way like that Episcopalian bishop said a week ago yesterday that love is the answer. But specifically for us today, God's love for us displayed through the finished work of Jesus Christ is the answer for us. It's the answer for the world, but only as the world sees it on display in our lives and hears it through the words about Jesus from our lips. And so are you prepared to be a Hosea? <laughs> are you prepared for God to use you to testify his, of his loving grace to a specific set of people, a specific time, and a specific place? I can't prepare you for that. <laughs> the person sitting next to you cannot prepare you for that. Now in community together, we find a wholeness and we find a, a way to admonish one another and spur one another on to good works, yes. But you must abide in these truths personally first. And so today, as we come to God with heavy hearts, or maybe as, as you just come to the Lord and you're, and you're kind of bewildered about this display of love that we've seen in the book of Hosea, we're not meant to leave that place. We're not meant to just move on from that message. Even, even like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, that faith, hope, and love remain these three, but the greatest is what? Really? The greatest is what? Love. Love. Will they know us? Will they know us by our love? My challenge to you is the only way that you can be known by Christ's love is to abide in it yourself. And so are you abiding today? And even if you've made a wreck of your life, you're a gomer, come to God today as your Hosea because He is the one who restores. And so as we enter this time of invitation, my encouragement to you is to meditate on these things, surrender to them today, and let it be a, a new path for you to surrender to them each day as you go forward from here. Let's pray together.